0: All right, I hope you'll take your Bible and open to Isaiah chapter 59. Next week, we will get back to 2 Timothy and continue our walk through that letter. But today, we will be in Isaiah chapter 59. I think we probably all know what it's like to find ourselves in a situation where we are stuck. A situation where you know that on your own, there is no way out. Stuck, without help, not going anywhere. On Tuesday, I decided that even though it was icy and getting worse, that I would, just, I would still go to the, to the workshop that I had planned to go to. It was a four-hour drive, and I loaded down my truck with some extra weight, and I headed out. I didn't know if it was a good decision, and um, it was a slow and slick trip. Thankfully, I slid the right direction the whole way. Actually, when I got there, where I was going in Graham, Texas, the the roads were actually pretty clear there. But I knew that the rain and the cold were were headed that direction and that by the next day, it would look there like what it looked like here. I had this in mind, and I was driving. A a friend of mine, another pastor, had rented a, a really cool Airbnb for several of us to stay in on Lake Possum Kingdom, Um, the back of the house is all windows, great view of the lake, but to get there, I mean, it's just, and I thought, we're going in here, and we are not coming out. (laughs) I I had no ambition that we were actually going to make it to our workshop the next day, but it was a cool house, so maybe it wouldn't be so bad, but as I was winding down those roads, I was thinking back, all I could think about was a time back when we lived in Missouri, I had gone to work one morning. It iced during the day. At the end of the day, I set out to go home, and I got to that hill. I had a two-wheel drive truck, and there was carnage everywhere of others who had tried, and I knew I was stuck. There's no other way home but up that hill, and I wasn't going to make it. I ended up going, parking in the Target parking lot, calling my friend Clint, who had a really good truck. And he came, and he picked me up, and he drove me up the hill, took me to my house where we stayed for several days, I think. Without Clint's help, I was stuck, and I wasn't going anywhere. This morning, as we come to Isaiah 59, we're coming to a passage of Scripture in which we have a reminder of how stuck And how helpless we all are, apart from the grace of God and the work of Christ. It's a passage that reminds us that on our own, we are helplessly stuck in our sin. In fact, Isaiah says, your sin separates you from God. And on your own, you have no hope of coming to him. It's also a passage in which we are reminded of the initiative that God has taken to bring us out of our sin, to bring us near to him, Here, Isaiah tells us what God did for us that we could never do for ourselves. So, here's my hope this morning. My hope for us today, as we come to Isaiah 59, is that we will be reminded that in Christ there is hope of freedom from sin. Christ has done what is necessary to bring you near to God. Maybe this morning you feel stuck helpless because of your sin. Friend, there is hope. Now, as we come to Isaiah 59, we are jumping right into a really long book and pretty close to the end. And I will not try to recap the first 58 chapters for you this morning. This is why we generally just work our way through a book. We're kind of jumping in. Just know this. It's a book written by the prophet Isaiah to the people of God about 700 years before the coming of Christ. And at this point in the book, he's announcing salvation. Salvation is coming. And he's making this announcement to a people who have been in exile and come out of exile and who are longing for God's rescue. But here's the thing. They have not been faithful. They have continued to live in rebellion. So while they bear the name, the people of God... Their hearts are far from him. And so in Isaiah 59, Isaiah is helping these people to see their situation, to recognize how stuck they are. And then he provides hope that God will make the initiative to save his people. So go to the text. Here's a little framework for you. The first 14 and a half verses are about their situation, their sin and their separation from God. The second half of the chapter, we see God intervening. So I'm going to start by reading the first half. We're going to talk about their situation, and then we'll read the second half and consider God's provision. Didn't read my Bible, but I have it here. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Behold, the Lord's Hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, and they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight. Among those full of vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for the truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It's the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As we come to this part of Isaiah we're actually in a very similar context to what we were in when we were in Malachi. Remember in December? In Malachi, we talked about how the people had recently returned from exile in Babylon, and that's the case by the time we get to the end of Isaiah. That's, that's who the audience is. They had been in exile, and now they're back in their land. But even though they're back, things aren't the way they think they should be. We see in this part of Isaiah is that the people are frustrated and they feel distant from God. It's like, it's like God's not hearing their prayers, or like his blessing is for some reason being withheld. If you look across the page back to um, chapter 58, you can see in verse 3 they ask this question Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Do you understand the question? They're saying, we're, we're doing religious things. We're doing things like you've told us to do, but it's like you don't see it. I feel like you don't see what we're doing for you. That's their complaint. And God responds. Chapter 58, verse 3, God says, behold... In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Have you ever had one of those days where you fight in the car all the way to church and then you get back in the car? And you fight the rest of the way home? It's kind of like what's going on here. I hope you haven't had many days like that. But that's the situation. We have people who are going through the motions. They're doing their religious duty, but their hearts aren't focused on God. They're skipping meals in God's name, at the same time hating and oppressing those around them. And they don't understand why God seems distant. This is something that Isaiah speaks to as we get to our chapter 59. He makes it clear that the distance they feel is not a deficiency in God. Do you notice verse one? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. And He is not hard of hearing; His ear is not dull that it cannot hear. Isaiah is telling us, God is fully able to save. He is fully capable of hearing his people. It's not a deficiency on his part. And yet there is a reason why the people feel unheard. Verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's what Isaiah is saying. Do you know why God feels distant? It's because you're living in ongoing sin without any repentance. Your sin has created a separation between you and God. The problem is not with God. It's with your sin. This is significant. They have lives that are dominated by wickedness so we see a people who are hypocritical. They're doing things under the guise of justice, but they're deceitful and dishonest. We see that in verses 4 and 5. He compares in verses 5 and 6, he compares the people to snakes and spiders. Let's just say those aren't positive connotations. To call someone a snake is not a compliment. And if you're with us when we studied Genesis 3 in Sunday school last week, maybe you know why. Isaiah is painting a picture of a people who are committed to wickedness. And he says in verse 7 Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed blood. Their thoughts are not pure. They're thoughts of iniquity, thoughts of desolation and destruction. These are their highways. This is where they live. This is the path they walk. They don't love peace, they don't love justice. It's a description of people whose hearts and minds and thoughts, it's all bent towards sin. And I think, let me I'm just going to test you. What kind of people would you think about when you hear this description? Maybe you have your cousin in your mind, right? You know, that crook. You're thinking of a, a certain segment of the population, violent criminals. Bertie Mayoff. A specific category of exceptionally cold and wicked people. That's what I had in mind as I read this chapter. Like, whew, it's a rough lot. And yet, if we fast forward to Romans chapter 3, in Romans 3, Paul's making this case that all are wicked. You probably recognize these verses. Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Everyone has turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then he says this, and he quotes Isaiah 59. Here in Romans 3, he's talking about everybody. And he quotes Isaiah 59. He says, all people, Jew and Gentile alike, their feet are swift to shed blood their paths are ruined in misery Last time it was that this time it's not He quotes Isaiah 59 A little bit later in Romans 3 he gives us the conclusion All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3, Paul's making the argument that every person apart from Christ is utterly sinful, and he proves Isaiah 59 to make the case. Church, what we have in Isaiah 59 is not a description of the worst of the worst. What we have in Isaiah 59 is a description of ourselves apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you are a person Who loves sin? Apart from Christ, you are a person who is ruled by evil desires. And so am I. We are all born with sinful hearts, and Isaiah tells us that our sin separates us from God. This is important to hear. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, Isaiah is telling us here, That this is your nature, and you have been separated by God because of it. In a few minutes, we'll talk more about what God has done to reconcile us, but this is important. It's it's significant to recognize who we are before God without Christ. What we see in the next several verses is further proof that this is a condition that does, in fact, separate us from God. It's interesting to note that the voice changes, there's actually several, several voice changes in this chapter. Starting in verse 9, we get the, the first person plural, and it's like we hear the people acknowledging not only their sin, but how stuck in their sin they are. Look at it again. They say, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble in the daylight like you would normally stumble when it's dark. And then he says, Among those who are full of vigor and strength, we're like the dead men. I love verse 11. Just memorize it. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. Some of you do that sometimes, don't you? Complaining and griping. Hoping for justice, but there is none. Wanting salvation, but it is far away. What we have here is an acknowledgement of their situation. And also this sense that they don't have the ability to get out of it on their own. We're wicked and we're defiled and we don't know the way out. It's a sad picture. A people so consumed by sin that they don't know how to get out. And I I would imagine that you have felt that before. In your sin, and try and try and try as you will, you don't know the way out. Have you been there or is it just me? I don't know how to get past it. This was their condition and this is ours. Paul tells us in Ephesians that before Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And this is where so many misunderstand the nature of salvation. Our temptation is to try to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves acceptable to God. But you can't. You're dead apart from Christ. A blind man just feeling around in the dark. Far from salvation. We keep going, they confess their sins. Verse 12, they're guilty and denying God. Verse 13, they're dishonest, lying from the heart. Verses 14 and 15, they are people without justice, without righteousness, and desperately in need of salvation. It's a bleak picture, and it's a picture of where all of us are, if not for the work of God. And if Isaiah stopped there, we would be left simply to acknowledge and mourn our condition Let's go back to where I started. On our own, we are stuck at the bottom of an icy hill without any way to get up. Did you hear my West Texas come out there? We can try to make it up that hill on our own, but we will always slide back down. Isaiah is writing to a people who recognize their need but are simply stuck. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. So let's pick up reading. In the second half of verse 15, consider the gospel. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation. And his uprightness, his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, and the wind that the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. (coughs) To all those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember the complaints from verse 58. "We fasted, and you don't see it. We humbled ourselves, You don't acknowledge it. It's like you don't even see us." Do you see how verse 15 starts? The Lord saw it. He sees their situation. He sees their sin and he is grieved. The Lord saw it. It displeased him that there was no justice. Verse 16. He saw that there was no man and he wondered because there was no one to intercede for them. What's happening in this verse, church, should humble us and amaze us and overwhelm us. Isaiah has been describing a people who willfully lived in wickedness. Their feet ran to evil. They were swift to shed blood, transgressing and denying the Lord. They turned back from following God. They willfully lived in defiance. But then Isaiah says God saw them. And instead of responding in judgment towards them, he took action to save them. God looked and said, they don't have an advocate. They don't have anyone to intercede for them. There isn't anyone to combat evil or to overcome their wickedness. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So what does he do? How does he respond? Then his own arm brought them salvation. My people need An advocate. And in the strength of his own arm, he came in salvation. God sees his people lost and in need of help, and he takes matters into his own hands. He decides to bring salvation by his own strength. He decides to make things right, and he will do it himself. Verse 17. He gets dressed. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal. What we have is a warrior preparing for battle, putting on the breastplate, putting on the helmet, putting on the armor. He's zealous. He's ready. Let me just pull back the curtain, tell you what you probably already know. This is an announcement of Christ. God's warrior, the one who had come to do battle against sin, against Satan, against death. We were dead to sin, unable to help ourselves, and yet God saw our condition. He took initiative. He dressed for battle, and he came. In 18 and 19, we see the battle. And because of verses 20 and 21, we know that he's not coming to fight his people. He's coming to fight their enemies. And he's not here talking about Babylon or Assyria or any of the other nations that earlier in Isaiah he has already judged. No, at this point, church, I believe the enemy is sin. According to their deeds, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render payment. So they shall fear the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. He will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. It's a scene of a warrior defeating his enemies, coming like a rushing river, like a powerful wind, and every adversary is conquered. He is feared, all for the glory of his name. We see the same imagery back in Isaiah chapter 42. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty, against all of his foes. He defeats every enemy. And the primary enemy is sin. The sin that held us captive. God sent Christ, his warrior, to come and defeat sin and Satan and death. And he did it so that people like you and me could have salvation that we could never have on our own. Verse 20. A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. I, I said at the beginning that I hope for you today, Isaiah 59, will be a reminder that in Christ you have hope to be set free from your sin. If you feel stuck and helpless in your sin today, there is hope. What we've seen up to this point is that while we are born full of wickedness and while we are born far from salvation, unable to save ourselves, God has seen our condition. He has chose to act on our behalf. With his own arm, he brought salvation. He became the warrior. He defeated every enemy. And that warrior is our redeemer. So who receives this redemption? Verse 20. It's for those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. Or to use different language, Jesus saves everyone who repents and turns to him. This is the hope for every person. Go back and read the first half again. We see our guilt, we see our inability. But in the second half, you see that God takes the initiative He became our advocate. You may be here today, and this is common, you may be here today and assume that God is pleased with you because you've lived pretty well or that you're not as bad as you could be. Maybe you assume that God will show you mercy because you're faithful to be here or because your family has always been Christian. Friends, the only way to be saved is through repenting of sin and turning to Christ because he is the only one who can save you. Believer, brother, sister who's trusted Christ, this passage is significant for you too. Because even though we're saved, we still struggle with sin, don't we? Maybe you would take time this afternoon to read again the first 15 verses of the chapter. And my guess is if you read them carefully and search through the imagery, you'll find that there are aspects of those first 15 verses that describe attitudes of your heart that remain. He has a lot to say in these verses about the words we use. He talks about lying. Are you a person who struggles to tell the truth? Do you have a tongue, to use Isaiah's words, that mutters wickedness? Do you talk about things that you have no business talking about? How about this? Are you honest in the way you do business? Isaiah says they were a people who relied on empty pleas and who spoke lies. They were deceitful in the way they did business. He talks about bitterness denying the Lord, which we all do at times when we don't trust his provision for us. As we listen to this passage and think about what Christ has done for us, we recognize he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Maybe when I read verses, verses were those? When he talks about the armor, did that sound familiar to you? Familiar with Ephesians, Paul takes that imagery. And just as Isaiah said that the Lord prepared for battle, Paul uses the exact same imagery and tells us to do the same. It's Ephesians 6, I'll read it for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So, we're not doing ourselves, we're doing it in his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and have put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstance, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helm of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul tells us to prepare. He's talking to Christians, those who are not under the penalty of sin, but who are still struggling with the presence of sin. And he tells us to put on the armor of Christ. Do you know why you have access to that armor? It's because Christ first put on the armor and defeated sin on our behalf. And it's because what he did first that we now can take up the armor and stand. So what do we do with that? This week, when you find yourself in that situation, when you're tempted to sin, you can think back to the warrior Christ who put on armor to defeat sin for you and who is given you the ability now to put on the armor of the gospel and to stand. When you go against temptation, you don't go alone. You go in the power of God through Christ. And that should give you hope. We can stand and fight because ultimately Christ is the one who has fought for us. As we read through the first half of Isaiah 59, it's clear how sinful we really are. And yet God saw our need, and he took initiative to save us. And he did it because he is faithful to his promises. Look at verse 21. "'As for me, this is my covenant with them,' says the Lord. "'My spirit that is upon you, and my words I have put in your mouth, "'and they shall not depart out of your mouth, "'or out of the mouth of your offspring, or the mouth of your children's offspring,' says the Lord." but this time forth and forevermore. Why did God save these fools? Because he had already promised to, and he is faithful to his covenant. He made a covenant to Abraham. He made a covenant to David. And even when Israel was unfaithful, God continued to be faithful. He made a covenant, and he will keep it. He is saving his people, and he is giving us his spirit There's a whole other point we won't go into now about the spirit that's been given to us. His word that's been given to us. And he will be faithful to his promise from generation to generation. He will continue to save for himself the people that he has bought with his own blood. In just a few minutes, we're gonna share together at the Lord's table. And as we do, I hope today you could come to the table with a greater awareness of how wicked you were. With a greater awareness of how desperately you needed saving. With an increased knowledge that you could not save yourself. You were blind and could not find the light. You were dead and unable to give yourself life. But God, because of his covenant faithfulness, looked down, and saw us and sent an advocate, a warrior, a redeemer. This morning as we come to the table, I hope you will come with a heart of repentance, eager to turn from sin, and with gratitude, thankful for all that God has done to save